Morning, everybody. Good to see you. We're back. Um, as I say, we've had a lot on, but here we are. And as you can see, I'm shackled this morning to one of these. Um, I can't flap my arms. Well, I can, but you won't be able to hear what I'm saying. So, uh, no, the um, microphone broke. So, it's this. So, if, if I fade out because my arms are going, just put your hand up and I'll repeat what I just said. Okay. If you have your Bibles there, you can open them up to Matthew 23. And this morning... I want you to listen very, very carefully to what I'm saying. I'm quite serious about that. People laughed. <laughs> um, I'm quite serious. Yeah, no, 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 no. But the reason I'll, I'll explain in a second. Okay. I know you do. Thank you. Okay. Um, Morris was 82 years old and he went to the doctor for a checkup. The next day, the doctor saw him walking at quite a pace down the street with an incredibly attractive younger woman on his arm. Two weeks later, Morris came back for a follow-up and the doctor said, Morris, you're looking fantastic. What's, what's going on? And he said, well, I just took your advice. You said, get a hot mama and be cheerful. And he said, no, Morris, I didn't say that. I said, you have a heart murmur and be careful. So listen very carefully this morning so that you do not hear what you think I'm saying but you hear what I'm actually saying, okay? So today we're going to look at The Day I Gave Up Camel, an obtuse kind of title but it'll make sense very shortly. See, I've eaten a whole bunch of stuff in my life, particularly when I was in the army. I remember doing a uh, survival weekend uh, where we had to eat snake and crocodile and kangaroo all before this stuff was trendy to eat, I might add, um, and slaughter our own lambs and whatever. To be polite, I have eaten chicken feet at Yumcha. Anyone else? Okay. I've never tried camel, uh, but I can tell you right now I've eaten a lot of it. Uh, and by that I mean I've eaten a lot of camel every time that I get angry at the way someone treats me uh, and judgmental about the way they treat me, but justify my own anger. You know what I'm talking about? I, I eat camel every time that I think being right and winning is more important than being loving. Anyone else relate to that? Okay. I eat camel every time I decide that there are the secondary peripheral issues are actually more important than the things that actually really, really matter. And the thing I want to talk to us about today is when we lose sight of Jesus, we lose sight of what matters to Jesus. And we can get focused on the things that just don't matter to him so much. And perhaps now more than ever, and Kay prayed it this morning, you know, we're living in an increasingly complex and frightening world. Um, and things are spinning off in all directions. And more than ever, I think it is time for us as the church to not be baffled and, and buffeted about by this stuff, but to actually remain firm and steadfast and to fix our eyes on Jesus and to focus on him and to keep our focus on the main things that actually matter to Jesus. Now, the mission of God and the people of God getting sidetracked and hijacked by a whole bunch of peripheral issues is not a new thing. It's happened before, okay? It happened in Jesus' day. And in Matthew 23... Jesus actually spends almost an entire chapter 
taking the religious leaders of the religious establishment to task for their failure to keep focused on what truly matters and for getting sidetracked and overinflating the importance of other issues. There's like seven woes. There's, there's a lot of really heavy stuff in there. It's like, tell us what you really think, Jesus. And he is. He's letting loose on these guys. I don't want to go through all of that today. I just want to focus on one passage in Matthew 23, verse 23. And what Jesus says to the religious leaders of his day is this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. So he's just warming up, right? You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill and your cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Another translation says, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. And what Jesus is saying to them in this is that when it comes to the law, the whole law is important. But to put it in the, uh, the parlance of George Orwell, not all law, some law is more equal than others, okay? So all the law is important, but some law is actually more important than others. And the Jews had all up 613 commands that they had to obey, that told them how they should live, what God thought was important, the example they were to be setting for the world. And Jesus said, look, all of that matters. None of it's unimportant. He doesn't tell them that they shouldn't bother with the small stuff, okay? The stuff around personal piety and tithing of their, their wild herbs and spices and that. He says, you should have done that, but you've neglected in, in, in focusing so much on that, you've actually neglected the more important matters. You've neglected things that really, really, really matter. But he doesn't say, forget this and just do this. He said, you, you should take care of the weighty matters while at the same time attending to the smaller matters as well. In other words, it all matters, but it's not equally important. And sometimes within the scheme of things, there is a conflict. Sometimes we have to choose which law or which principle or which teaching is going to take precedence over another. For example, the big one that they had uh, in Jesus' day in the Old Testament was do no work on the Sabbath. It seemed pretty straightforward. Don't work on the Sabbath. They just, some, a lot of people went to a lot of trouble to define what work actually was. It involved you couldn't lift this, you couldn't move this, you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that. But then another issue uh, arose. What if your donkey falls in a ditch? What if you walk past someone who is actually trapped and needs your help? Is it work to lift a piece of wood off someone? And so the issue then became, well, which is the greater law? To adhere to the, uh, the Sabbath command of doing no work or to actually save a life. So this tension was brought into play and people have to make choices in the day out over which law is going to take precedence, which principle is going to take precedence. Now, we're not under law. We're in the New Covenant. We're New Testament people, okay? But the principle actually holds true for us. Because there's heaps of stuff in the Bible, if you haven't already worked this out, that tells us what God expects of us. What it looks like to follow Jesus, what it looks like to be a person who lives in the kingdom, what it means to be part of the church of Jesus Christ, this is what characterizes us. This is what is important to us. This is the stuff that we do. And we have to be able to understand that within the scheme of things, it's all important. But again, some things are more important than others. And sometimes there will be a conflict where we need to choose which particular teaching is going to take precedence over another. So I thought we'd look at that in light of something that is actually incredibly real and incredibly live issue for us today that we are facing as a people.
and that is the same-sex marriage debate. Are you up for something contentious today? Yeah? It's a fool who does this, but that's me. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to talk about this issue, this gnats and camels issue, in relation to the same-sex marriage and all the attendant sort of connected parts that go with that as well. Basically, I want to say this. If we're to take Jesus' teaching seriously here, okay, how we handle this in light of, of the gnats and camels principle that he outlines here, I would have to say this, all right? How we vote on this issue is not nearly as important as how we behave in this issue, okay? So how we vote in this issue is not nearly as important as how we behave around this issue. And I think, I'm not saying that how we vote is not important. That's why I said you have to listen to what I'm actually saying. Having our beliefs, having our stand on things, we, we have the freedom to do that. It's important. It is important. But it's not nearly as important as how we behave. Okay? And I think a lot of us Christians, and, and what I'm seeing on television and the ads and stuff like that, is that um, we're losing sight of that. And I think we're losing sight of that for one very simple reason. That's because most people are afraid. We're afraid of where this is all going to go. We're afraid that if we open the door on this particular issue, and let, okay, it's going to open the door to a whole range of other issues, okay? And that is a fear that is not unwarranted, unmerited, okay? There, there are a lot of connected issues here. If we open the door on this issue, it's going to open the door for a whole bunch of issues and we're going to find ourselves living in a world that um, is going to get a little bit darker, okay? But I would like to say to you that even if that were true, and it needs to be substantiated as to whether or not that is true, okay, there are already, in my opinion, far bigger issues that are diminishing us as a society, there are far bigger issues that are taking us down the rabbit hole, okay, that we blithely ignore or participate in every single day. And we don't bat an eyelid, and I'll talk a little bit about this later, because it actually doesn't immediately impact on us. But there is some stuff that's happening in the world that is making the world a darker place. It is diminishing us as people and as society, okay, and it's happening all the time, but we're not getting up in arms about that stuff, Okay but we're afraid of this one. We're also afraid that we may lose our rights and be, and I use air quotes for this, persecuted. And the reason I use air quotes around persecuted is because we don't know what persecution is, okay? You need to go and live in some other countries to find out and talk to some Christians who try and live out their faith in those countries to understand what persecution is. This is a term that is too easily bandied around here when someone disagrees with us, okay? We're being persecuted. No, we're not. Someone's disagreeing with us. That's what's going on here, okay? And there's no doubt that if this legislation is passed, things might get a little bit tricky because, as I said, there are a lot of connected issues with this. But I hate to break this to you guys. You signed up to a movement, okay, that was started by someone who was crucified for his stand on things. We are told over and over again in Scripture that we are aliens in this world, okay? that we should expect persecution, that we should not expect to be warmly welcomed and supported by everyone because our particular way of seeing the world will often bring us into conflict with the way others see the world. There is a price to be paid for, for being a follower of Jesus. Now, we use that language, we talk about it all the time, but then it looks like it might actually happen and everyone freaks out like the sky is falling. 
It's ludicrous. What might happen to us is we may actually have to put our money where our mouth is. We may actually have to decide that what we believe, we believe enough to suffer for it. Wouldn't that be crazy? Not just suffering that you have to get out of bed and go to church, which I know is horrible, terrible price to pay for being a follower of Jesus. But you might be up against stuff, and we might be up against, we might, I say might, because we don't know. But if we do, that's what we actually signed up for, if our convictions lead us down that particular road. Okay? Let me also remind you of something. and It was, it was kind of reflected in some of the songs we were singing today, which I thought was amazing. The way, you know, the prayers that Kay was praying, the songs that we were singing. I just thought, God's just re- reinforcing this message. Christianity took root and thrived in, a, in an environment that is far more hostile than we're going to be living in. You need to understand that. For 300 years, there was quite overt persecution against Christianity. And it thrived. You know, you know where Christianity really got into trouble? In the 300s, under Constantine, when we got in bed with the state. That's where we started to suffer. When the state and Christianity became aligned, prior to that, it thrived. And Christianity will always thrive because you can't stop the kingdom. You cannot stop the kingdom of God advancing. Doesn't Jesus say that? Okay, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. It means they will not stand against the church. No matter how much law, legislation, anything comes, persecution, it doesn't matter. You can't stop the church of Jesus Christ. We need to remember that truth when we find ourselves getting afraid. Because when we're afraid, we actually respond out of fear and not out of love. And when we respond out of fear, the ends tend to justify the means that we use. And when that happens, we may win particular battles, but we will, win, we will lose the war. That's what we have to bear in mind when we do this. Yes, we might stop same-sex marriage. We may protect ourselves from per, uh, potential persecution. But my question is, at what price? Will the kingdom advance... Will people be more or less attracted to Christianity? Will people be more or less willing to hear about the message of Jesus Christ if we decide that the ends justifies the means? See, we are about people coming to know and to follow Jesus. And that is never done by coercion. That is never done by legislation. That is only done through love. So how we behave in this incredibly important time really matters because it is love that changes lives, not laws. Okay? We have to remember that. It is love that changes lives, not laws. If we want to see our society transformed, we don't do it through legislation. We do it through sacrificial love. That's how the church changes the world. That's how the kingdom comes. So what's our end game here? What are we wanting to see happen ultimately? We personally want to see the kingdom take root in people's lives and in our communities and we want to see them transformed by the love and grace of God and see the kingdom. And again, no law can stop that. So what we need to realise, if we're tempted to in this particular process, it is very, very easy to make a stand or to make a point, but I'm not interested in making a stand or making a point. I'm very interested in making a difference. And that's harder and it takes longer. But that is what we are about. So by all means, have your convictions, have your beliefs, whichever way. That's important. But remember, it is not as important as how you behave towards other people as we wrestle with these issues. We can speak the right truth from the wrong spirit, can't we? We can speak the right truth from the wrong spirit. 
Satan quoted the Bible 100% accurately to Jesus in the desert, didn't he? But his motivation and his attitude, and I'm pretty sure his interpretation was way off, but the words were right. So we can speak the right truth from the wrong spirit, and we need to be aware of that, okay? The middle ground has been hollowed out, and people are rushing to either side to batten down and throw things at one another, okay? And we are followers of Jesus, and we are called to go the way of Jesus, and the way of Jesus is to be peacemakers who inhabit the places in between. There's actually quite a brilliant sermon on our podcast thing about that. I think it was me that did that. Um, but it's actually probably more important now than ever um, to, to go back and listen to that particular thing as well. We inhabit those spaces in between, irrespective of where we sit on any particular position. And we draw people together and we extend love and grace to all. That is the way of Jesus. You know, the dilemma with being a peacemaker is that you're disliked by both sides. Did you know that? Because, you, you know, you're too wishy-washy for some and you're too harsh for others. But that's the price you pay to be a peacemaker. Let's look at camel eating another way in relation to this issue. Just recently, I'm not sure if you're aware, but... Um, yeah. In the US, this is really not just the same-sex marriage debate, the whole gender, sexual, human sexuality issue is just, just going huge. Uh, um, a group of people, 150 prominent leaders in America, just issued a thing called the Nashville Statement. It dropped about a week ago. And it maintains or purports to be the, the capital V, biblical stance on human sexuality. And there are a number of articles in there that affirm their particular stance on things. Perhaps for me, the most disturbing one was Article 10, which says, this is not a matter for disagreement among people who are actually Christians. So what we are telling you is that we deny that there can be a disagreement about this, and we affirm that if you disagree with our position on this, you are an apostate and hellbound. Okay? That's, that's fundamentally what it says. You're out of the club. You're delegitimatized. You are not part of the church if you disagree with our stance on this issue. Now, again, this is an important issue, and so are all the issues that come along with it. But to conflate it and all those other issues around salvation, about who's in and who's out, and this is what the Bible says in an unambiguous way, I mean, it goes beyond what the Bible actually says. This is what we need to be aware of, because this is part of the tactic. If you disagree on this point, we question your orthodoxy. And if we question your orthodoxy, we question your salvation. Okay? They are going way beyond, beyond what the Bible says. I, I thought, okay, then let's, let's do this. You want to you do that? Okay, let's, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's go somewhere that's unambiguous when it talks about how our behavior affects our eternal destiny. All right? Beyond faith in Jesus, right? Let's take, for an example, Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. 
I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty? When did we give you something to drink? When did we see uh, you as a stranger and invite you in or need clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, the goats, okay? Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for you and for the devil and his angels. And why, why there? Because you saw me naked and you didn't clothe me. You saw me hungry and you didn't feed me. You knew I was sick and you didn't come and visit me. You knew I was in prison and you didn't come and visit me. Unambiguous enough for you? So I think if we're going to draw a line in the sand and say to someone, you're in and you're out... The Bible needs to tell us what that is, yeah? We don't get to conflate other issues with salvation unless Jesus is as explicit as Jesus is. That's my opinion, all right? You're welcome to disagree with me about that, but you'll just need to find another church. Okay. <laughs> Please keep tithing, though. Um, I am joking about that. Just, just in case, like you're like, really, seriously? Uh, no, I'm not joking about tithing. I'm too, uh, okay. That's not a joke. Okay, but let me put some other proportion and perspective around this thing. Okay, and please, again, don't hear what I'm not saying and hear what I'm actually saying. There are six or seven verses in the Bible that speak about homosexuality. Now, if we're going to be absolutely brutally clear about this probably three to four, maybe even five of those are highly questionable on all sorts of levels. There is a lot of disagreement, a lot of ambiguity around what some of these words actually mean. So, it, But let's just be generous and say there's six or seven verses that say same-sex marriage, attraction, all of that is not what God designed and therefore is wrong, Okay. And if you want to talk about this more in detail, in two weeks we're having the conversation, it's going to be a Q&A and we're going to be talking in depth about this issue. So if you have questions that you want to ask and we'll get into some of the nitty gritty around this, come to the conversation, it's our Q&A night where we can explore this stuff together, okay? So six or seven verses, let's be generously, against same-sex relationships. But there are close to 2,000 verses that speak about God's hatred of injustice. Can anyone see a disproportionate emphasis there? Yeah? Six or seven versus 2,000 verses on justice and injustice. And injustice is, you know, for, for, for the sake of definition, it's not giving people fairly what they are due, especially with, the, uh, with respect to the administration of law. And the Bible actually talks about a very specific type, type of injustice, that of social injustice as well, which is the absence of, I guess, of fair distribution of economic means, educational pros prospects, political influence and other such opportunities within a community. And you've only got to turn on your television to know that is a huge issue right now. That is a live issue. It has been live for a long time, but it's probably liver than it's ever been in all sorts of ways. How many statements are people issuing about that? How many statements of people are saying, we believe that any type of injustice is the antithetical to the ways of God and therefore anyone who disagrees with that can no longer be in fellowship with us? Why aren't we issuing those type of statements? Because there's a lot more evidence for God's hatred of injustice than, he, than how he feels about same-sex attraction. I'm just putting, trying to put some proportion and perspective around this, okay? 
We don't just ignore that. Sometimes we vote in the people that are the worst perpetrators of that injustice because it protects our own self-interest. We, we need to take that on board. So how many statements are we issuing on that? How come we haven't drawn a line in the sand over that one? How about the fact that there is more unambiguous biblical clarity around the role of women in the church and divorce? Did you know that? If we're to take the Bible at face value, there is more, more clarity, more unambiguous clarity around us saying women should not be in ministry in the church. Yet how many of you chased Kay off the platform last week? Hey? You should have. Because as far as the Bible goes, at face value, women should not speak in church. Yes. Uh, I am joking. Okay. And, and divorce. You know, God actually says, I hate divorce. He says that. Jesus actually comes down fairly heavily on divorce too. These used to be big issues in the church. They're no longer big issues in the church, are they? Why? Did we all go away and do our homework? We just got used to it. There's a bit of biblical footwork that's gone on with some people around this stuff. Now, just, for, for, just for, to be honest here, I, I don't agree with, with not having women in ministry and the divorce the way some people come down. I think there are good reasons to not go down that road. So just so you, you, you're clear on that. But for the most part, none of us have a problem with this stuff, not because we came to those conclusions through our own study of the word and were convinced that the position we had taken was wrong and needed to change. We just got used to it. We do that with a whole range of issues. Things just become normal. So things that we once were very strong about, things that once probably split churches, things that kept people out of the church are no longer issues anymore. And yet these things have more unambiguous clarity around them than the issue that we're talking about here. Let me give you some more unambiguous stuff. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Are we, we th feeling like God doesn't like this stuff? Okay, right. What, what does God hate? What are, what are things that are detestable to God? Haughty eyes. That's arrogance. Anyone ever been arrogant? Not me. A lying tongue. Oh, a lying tongue. Damn, I just did it. Okay, hands, hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked schemes. Feet that are quick to rush into evil. A false witness who pours out lies. And I love this one. I love this one because I think it is so church-centric, okay? And a person who stirs up conflict in the community. When was the last time we said to someone, you've got to stop that because you're stirring up conflict in the community. God explicitly hates that. Get out of our church. No, we rally around their hurt and offence and, and we split churches, don't we? It's an acceptable sin in church to let people stir up dissension in the community. We let people gossip. We let people run people down. We let people um, conduct themselves in incredibly unhealthy ways. We let people nurse their offence and grow their offence and infect others when God hates it. There is more grounds for us excommunicating that person than there is with someone with same-sex attraction. Are you with me? I know this sounds hard, but I've, we're going to get some proportion and perspective and some clarity around this. We've got to go back to Scripture, okay? Not just what our feelings tell us, all right? So if we were to take that passage seriously, there'd be all sorts of troubles, okay? Here's the thing. We did a... Uh, this issue is so big. I hosted a roundtable here at church um, on Wednesday with some of the senior leaders from our movement 
um, and Rick Lewis, who was the last senior pastor at this church, we convened this thing to talk about it because the implications are so huge and people are wrestling with such huge issues at the moment, you know. And what you need to understand is there are going to be pastors that will lose their jobs over this particular issue because of the stance that they take. There will be churches that split over this issue. But I know of a church where a pastor doesn't even believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ and that's a non-issue. Now, for me, that's a hill worth dying on. For me, that's a demarcation point, okay? Because I think the Bible's pretty clear about the divinity of Jesus. And I accept that could just be the way I read it. I always allow for the fact that, you know what? I could be wrong. I just don't think I am. And nor do I think is the historical church position on that either, okay? But that, that's okay, but God forbid you should say, I'm not sure I have a problem with same-sex attraction. That will... We, here's, here's, here's my thing. We are selective about what we get outraged about, aren't we? We are so selective about what we get outraged about. And we usually get outraged about two things. One, that has nothing to do with us because it doesn't require us doing any change, you know? We can get up in arms about same-sex attraction because it's not my problem. I can stand and go, oh, it's not my problem. You shouldn't have that problem. I don't have that problem. Well, some people do have that problem. And it's a complex issue. The other thing we get upset about is stuff that is going to directly impinge upon us. Stuff that is going to make us have to change our minds or change our lifestyles. Stuff that's actually going to bite. We're very selective about the things we get outraged about. We eat a lot of camels in the church. And the problem is we don't even know that we're doing it. And woe to the fool that brings up the fact that we do. Remember, Jesus didn't get crucified for protesting against the Roman cultic prostitute practices of his day. He got crucified because he pointed out the hypocrisy of the religious establishment of his day. It was people of God that had him killed by the state. Why? Because he made them feel uncomfortable. He held a mirror up to them and he said, Really? Really? You think that stuff's important? What about this stuff? And we don't want to touch that stuff because that means we would have to change. We would have to do something. Easier to kill you. He did not get murdered for walking around with a placard protesting something. He was murdered for standing up to the hypocrisy within the people of God of his day. We are so very precious and protective about the things that touch us, but if we are going to claim to represent Jesus, then we need to be passionate and consistent and brave in upholding what is clearly important to him, not what is clearly important to us. And there is no ambiguity about that sort of stuff. It's all through the Bible. How about this one? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if, if you love one another. I love 1 John, four, uh, 1 John 2, 4 to 11. It's a little bit lengthy, but I'm going to read it to you because I just think now more than ever, this is so important. I'm reading it from the message version. It says, if someone claims, I know Jesus, I know him well, but doesn't keep his commandments, he's obviously a liar. His life doesn't match his words. But the one who keeps God's word is the person in whom we see God's mature love. This is the only way to be sure we're in God. Anyone who claims to be intimate with God ought to live the same kind of life that Jesus lived. Wow, there's your litmus test. How do I know if I'm in? It is, is it my assent to a certain set of doctrines or is it that I'm living the life that Jesus lived? It's I am living the life that Jesus lived. Okay? The fruit speaks for itself. My dear friends, I'm not writing you anything new here. This is the oldest commandment in the book and you've known it from day one. It's always been implicit in the message you've heard. 
On the other hand, perhaps it is new. Freshly minted, it is both Christ and you. The darkness is on its way out and the true light is already blazing. Anyone who claims to live in God's light and hates a brother or sister is still in the dark. It's the person who loves his brother and sister who dwells in God's light and doesn't block the light from others. But whoever hates is still in the dark, stumbles around in the dark, doesn't know which end is up, blinded by the darkness. Why is that important? Because when things like the Nashville Statement drop, they reinforce the idea that we get to be in a schisms about these things. It reinforces the idea that we get to split rather than pull together. It reinforces that we get to go into our camps. By this shall all men know you are my disciples if you love one another. We play right into the enemy's hands when we start splitting over issues like this. We lose our credibility, we lose our witness, we lose our power. And the world looks at us and it just goes, you can't even stick it out together. You have to turn on each other, okay? Why is this important? In this meeting we had the other day, one of the guys said to me, I've totally misread my church, I've totally misread it. I thought I knew where we stood. But when this thing kicked off, over two-thirds of my church posted rainbow flag overlays on their Facebook profile. He said, I would never have picked that in a million years. And he said, but my church, 40% of my church is under 30. See, the church is not only dividing along theological lines, it's dividing along generational lines. People who are younger are not going to have an issue with this to the degree that people who are older and have grown up in a world where it's been clear what our stance on this type of thing has been. So the potential for schism and conflict is multifaceted. It's coming from all sorts of things, which makes our need to love one another even greater. Remember, how we vote is not as important as how we behave. The position we hold is not as important as whether or not we love. This is what we have to get our heads around going as we navigate this thing. It is complex. It's going to be hard. But, w- but loving one another is not up for negotiation, is it? Yeah? People don't sound convinced about that. Loving each other is not up for debate, is it? No, it is not, okay? Disagreement about big issues is not a new thing for the Christian church. We've even got records of it in Acts 15. What constitutes a Christian? When the Gentiles were coming in, okay, people were saying, well, if they're going to join the church, they've got to become Jewish. They've got to do all the things that we do. And yet there was a whole bunch of people saying, no, we're not going to put that on them. So right back to Acts 15, you've got this. And then we've had centuries and centuries of councils and, 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 and things where people are trying to work out what is, our, the, what is the way we're going to approach this? So disagreement is not a new thing. This is not a new thing. We're just living in such a time that requires, it's, it's fallen to us to have to navigate this particular one. You know, we're really comfortable when stuff happens in the Bible. It's when it happens out of the Bible that it really unnerves us, doesn't it? You know, I look at that dispassionately with the safety of 2,000 years and go, oh yeah, I can see why they do that. But we find ourselves in the middle of it. And it smells and it tastes and it feels really uncomfortable at times. Which is why we have to make sure that we major on the majors and minor on the minors and keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is love one another. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and in all things imitate him. Go the way of Jesus. 
Okay? He is the final hermeneutic on this thing. By that I mean, you know, in Hebrews it talks about, in the past, to our ancestors, God spoke to us through his prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us through his Son. Not through his Bible, through his Son. The Bi- Jesus is the lens through which we interpret the Bible. Okay? Jesus is the lens through which we interpret the Bible. If our behaviour or our position or our approach to something does not reflect the way of Jesus, even if we, irrespective of the position we hold, we are not following the way of Jesus and we are not faithfully representing the heart of the Scripture either. That's what we have to get our heads around. There's a whole bunch of stuff that is coming up now. This is an important issue, but we need to work through it without losing sight of the weightier matters. There's a whole bunch of stuff we can get sidetracked on, but the only thing that I'm interested in doing is learning how to live the way of Jesus. And the only thing I'm interested in doing as a pastor is, is leading a church that is committed to living the way of Jesus, okay? Not getting sidetracked on peripheral issues, keeping that thing the main thing all the time. And the bottom line is the way of Jesus is hard sometimes. It is tough. Jesus actually said, don't take the broad road, take the narrow road. And that's not a one-off choice to follow Jesus and then come to church. It's a choice we have to make every single day. Taking the narrow road is a choice we make every single day. It'd be easy to go with the crowd. And for some people who feel like this, you know, this, this issue, it's all wrong and, and you know, it's just cultural accommodation, then, then you know, it'd be easy to go with those people just to, to avoid the pain of arguing with them and getting caught up in that. It'd be easy to go the way of culture so people don't turn around to us and go, you're all bigoted, homophobic. It'd be easy. The narrow road is right down the middle where it pleases no one. Okay? That's the way that we are called to take. So, I'm going to land this and I'm going to leave you with a challenge because I think this is really important. Okay? Really important. Individually and collectively. Over these next few weeks, before we even go into voting for this plebiscite, I want us as a church to commit to just reading our way through the Gospels. You can leave out the genealogies, all right? You can leave out the genealogies just to save time. I'm not saying they're not important, they're just not as important as some of the other stuff right now, okay? Who begat whom is not, yeah, it really doesn't matter. Okay, leave out the genealogies, but go straight into the the teachings of Jesus and looking at Jesus interact with people. What I want you to do, just over the next few weeks, just work your way through the Gospels. Then, what I want to do is I want everyone to, to submit, and we'll set this up so you can do it. What are the things about the teaching or the example of Jesus that you find the most discomforting? The, things, the teachings or the example of Jesus that you think that would be incredibly hard to do. And we're going to take the top four of those things... And we're going to preach through them in October. All right? But what I'm hoping happens is a result of you spending time reading Jesus, looking at Jesus. And I know the problem we have here is that familiarity breeds contempt. We think, I've read the Gospels. I know it all. You know, la, la. No. My suggestion to you is if you've read it, right, and you aren't bothered by everything you read, you're not reading it properly. That's, that's the truth. I said, a couple of weeks ago, I thought, I'm going to preach on the rich man and Lazarus, right? I was so distressed by what I read, I couldn't do it. Because I thought, I don't know that I really like what you're saying in all of this, Jesus. If, you're not, if that's not having that effect, if you just read it and go, you know, uh, love your enemies, yeah, okay. 
really? You have not understood what that means. If you shrug your shoulders and go, okay, you've not got that. All right? We know you do, St. Rodney. That's okay. All right? But to really love your enemies. If I came and I pulled that wheelchair out from underneath you, all right, you wouldn't be fond of me immediately, would you, Rodney? Right, okay. I'm not going to do that, by the way. Oh, thank you. Okay. Right, this is really going down the rabbit hole. We'll move on. <laughs> I think that's quite extreme. I'd, I'd probably just have a quiet word, but by all means, take me to a psychiatrist. Um, <laughs> so here's the thing. So read it, right? Now read it, seriously. But really read it. Do not gloss over it. Do not think I've read this a thousand times. Stop. Let it sink in. And think, if he was dead serious about this, if I really had to do this, what would that mean for me? We're going to take the top four and we're going to look at them because what I think will happen, um, and we're going to show this actually in a couple of our next conversation, not the next one, the one after that. There's this, this wonderful, um, I got the idea from watching this little vignette. Uh, Starbucks have actually made a series called Upstanders. Anyway, there's one called The, 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 the Mosque Across the Street and it's a story of a church who were on, on a street and a mosque was being built and their response to that, it's in the south of America, so you can imagine there was a whole range of really interesting um, attitudes about that. And one guy uh, is telling his story and he said, I went to my pastor when I found out that our church was actually going to support them and I told him, you know, we completely disagree with you, we're going to leave the church. And he said, okay, well, just do me one thing before you do, just go and read the Gospels. And he went away and he read the Gospels and he came back. And on the film, it's very powerful, he's crying and he said, I read the Gospels and I found out I was the problem. I was the problem. And I thought, what incredible humility. What a, what a godly, gracious man who was willing to, to check his own beliefs and attitudes and allow the Spirit of God to change his heart. That can happen for all of us, guys. It needs to happen for all of us. So please... Please take up this challenge. Please start working your way through the Gospels. Not just because we're going to teach through them, but let the Gospels do their work on you as well. Let the teaching and example of Jesus do its work on you because it's imperative that the things that matter to Jesus matter to us in this time and beyond and always, but perhaps more so now than ever. You know, my, my eldest daughter and her husband have just become vegans. You can still talk to them. Um, <laughs> which means they've pretty much given up on food. <laughs> My suggestion as a church is not that we go vegan, but that we give up camel. Yeah? Who's with me? And that's why I called it this, because today, today's the day that we as a church give up camel. Yeah? We stop majoring on the minors. We stop getting sidetracked on peripheral issues. And we get back to keeping the main thing the main thing. Amen? We're going to have communion now and what a beautiful way to finish it because you know what? There are already people in this church, all of us, who have a very different opinions, very, very different ideas to one another. We don't agree on a whole range of issues and we don't agree on this issue. But we are going to come around the table because it's his table and he invites us to his table and he sets the agenda for his table and he says whoever will come, come. And that's the invitation for all of us. And we do it together because irrespective of where we stand on any spectrum, political, sexual, whatever, we are his church and we are one body. 
and he is our saviour and we're in this together. Amen? So we celebrate communion together in the spirit in which Jesus intended it. So there's some at the backs and some at the sides. We'll get the team up. Thank you very much.